You are listening to Keystone Stock Talk Podcast, Season 2, Episode 1. If this is your first time listening, then thanks for stopping by. This podcast is produced every week for your enjoyment, and show notes are found at www.keystocks.com. Come back often, and feel free to add the podcast to your favorite RSS feed or on iTunes. You can also follow us on Twitter at Keystocks and on Facebook or via our 24-hour streaming radio station, pennystocks.fm. And keep submitting your stocks via the usual social channels or at our website, keystocks.com, for our Your Stock Artake segment. And we just might review your stock in an upcoming show and let you know if it is a buy, sell, or hold. Now we have another busy show planned for you this week. We're getting so many questions that we have two stocks to review in our Your Stock, Our Take segment. The first is on Mama Mancini's Holdings, Inc. Its symbol is MMMB on the OTCQX. They are a marketer and distributor of a line of food products, primarily meatballs and sauce. The company reported a record quarterly set of results this past week, so a listener is asking us if it is a buy, sell, or hold at present. The second stock is one we are very familiar with, having covered it in the past and sold for a very strong gain. The company is Seacom Satellite Systems, a developer and manufacturer of commercial-grade mobile satellite-based technology for the delivery of two-way high-speed internet, VoIP, and video services into vehicles. We answer whether or not it is a buy, sell, or hold given a recent strong quarter from the business. We also, Aaron's going to comment on the musings from Fed Chair Janet Yellen uh, regarding U.S. interest rate policy going forward. And we're going to talk about quickly our uh, upcoming seminars, our DIY seminars in October. Now let's dig into the show. I will again welcome my co-host, Keystone Senior Equity Analyst, a father of two, and a man who, as reigning Canadian Dividend Analyst of the Year, has yet to commit to his visit to the White House this year, should he be asked. Aaron, welcome. Hello, Ryan. How are you doing? Very, very good. Uh, interesting, good. interesting week. Good to be back on the podcast. Uh, sure. You want before before we get into things, why don't we just uh, chat for a, for a minute here about our upcoming DIY do it yourself stock seminars? Excellent. Yeah, and these are upcoming in. Uh, I can go through the dates here in Kelowna on October seventeenth, in Langley, BC on October eighteenth, in Victoria on October nineteenth. We will be in Vancouver on October twenty fourth in Edmonton on October 25th, and in Calgary on October 26th. So Aaron, do you want to go over kind of the thrust behind this new seminar series? Absolutely. So what we're going to focus on for this seminar series is investing in U.S. growth stocks, growth and income stocks, and essentially just building a U.S. portfolio, investment portfolio, 
taking advantage of strength in, in the Canadian dollar. So for those that don't know, we, we did these seminars in the spring. We did a couple of cross-country tours. They weren't focused, these ones, those ones weren't focused on U.S. investing. They were just focused on general investing principles, essentially teaching people from the from the front to the back of, of how to look at companies, how to build a portfolio, how to identify good investment opportunities, and also how to avoid risk and how to avoid losing money, which is is the first principle of investing. So we did these tours. We did two cross-country tours in the spring, and we had great, great feedback on those. And we're going to be doing we're going to be doing this again, like you just said, Ryan, um, this fall in October, with a focus on the U.S. A focus on U.S. investing, because this is a subject that um, that everybody is talking about right now with with the Canadian dollar trading now about eighty cents and strengthening recently. So. Um, Essentially, it's going to be it's going to be a similar format in some ways to the original one. We want to talk about basic investing principles and and risk avoidance and and opportunity augmentation, but you know, with with an emphasis on on building a, a U.S. portfolio and diversifying out of what's a very concentrated investment market in Canada. Very it's very difficult to have a diversified portfolio solely focused just on the Canadian market. So that's that's where the U.S. investing is, is a great opportunity for people. Yeah, I agree. And uh, like you said, uh, over the past two years, the Canadian dollar is actually at a two-year high now. So um, it is, from that perspective, uh, a better time than we've seen in, in, in any time from that perspective to uh, be start to adding or to add more U.S. exposure to your portfolio. Um, we are definitely underexposed in Canada. Many Canadians are underexposed to the U.S. market, and all Canadians could use some diversification, whether it be into the U.S. market or U.S. companies that are uh, operating globally. There is just a far more diverse market in the U.S. than we have in Canada. Opportunities for different types of businesses to invest in down here that we just don't have the breadth of uh, businesses that we have in this resource uh, laden market that we see in Canada. We're going to going to also, um, as far as Aaron went over the the topic there quite well. Uh, we're going to have two or four, two to four new stock recommendations in the U.S. market that we'll give uh, uh, through these series of uh, seminars as well. Uh, so we'll have some original content in that respect, and we'll put it all together uh, how as to how the U.S. segment of the portfolio fits within your overall portfolio as well and how we would structure that within your overall portfolio. So I think it would be a great uh, a, gr- a, gr- a great event, and uh, the last two events that we held were sold out, so we encourage you to... I think the sign-ups are open now. They're just opening up, so we encourage uh, uh, all our listeners to get on there, and if you got any questions, you can give us a call at the office on this seminar, or you can uh, just sign up, and we'll, we'll see you in person, and we take... You know, there's almost an hour to an hour and a half of question period after, which is often the best parts of these seminars, really. I, I think Aaron and me enjoy those uh, quite, you know, we really enjoy giving those answers and those, uh, the seminar and the Q&A question after. Yeah, and so if for anybody who's interested in signing up or more information, just go to our website, keystocks.com, keystocks.com, and you can, you can get more information there. Yeah, you can click on the front page. It talks about the DIY seminar there and uh, gives you information about that and you can uh, sign up there. It's time we answer a question on your stock in a little segment we like to call Your Stock, Our Take. Buy, sell, or hold. We're taking a question this week from Dale in Cold Lake, Alberta. 
The company is Seacom Satellite Systems. The symbol is CMI on the TSX Venture. Uh, the stock trades around a dollar two, and its market cap is thirty-seven point four million. It also pays a dividend. It's a microcap stock, but has paid a dividend uh, for a number of years now. It yields a healthy five percent. Seacom is actually a company we like. In fact, we recommended it back in 2011 when the stock traded in around the 40 cent range, and we subsequently sold it when it traded up to the $1.05 range. Now, what does Seacom do? They are a leader in the development, manufacture, and deployment of commercial grade mobile satellite based technology for the delivery of two way high speed internet voice over internet and video services into vehicles essentially they have developed a number of proprietary mobile auto deploying inet view that's what they call them antennas antennas sorry that are delivered broadband over satellite into vehicles while stationary virtually anywhere where one can drive in remote areas is what they specialize in there have been more than 7,000 Seacom antennas that have deployed in over 100 countries around the world in vertical markets such as oil and gas, military communications, disaster management, emergency communications, cellular backhaul, telemedicine, mobile banking, and many others. Now, this company actually had strong revenue growth in its last quarter. Uh, revenue was up around 68% to $3 million from $1.8 in the same period last year. The increase in revenue compared to the same period in 2016 was mostly due to resurgence in sales in the oil and gas exploration, mobile banking, and military segments. Now, outlook going forward, 2016 was an exceptionally challenging year for CECOM, not just for niche manufacturers like Seacom, but also for many of the large players in the SATCOM or satellite communication industry. The various headwinds included low oil prices, a strong U.S. dollar, economic and geopolitical uncertainty. All of these things slowed down sales for Seacom. But there is evidence that this has been a more significant slowdown for many of Seacom's competitors. Some of them are less well capitalized. With some retention or retrenching from the marketplace and others departing completely, uh, th this is what we saw in its main segment. In the first half of 2017, Seacom actually saw a slow but steady rebound in new orders from both existing and new customers for the company's key line of calm on pause products, specifically in the oil and gas, military, and mobile banking and emergency response verticals. Uh, they saw new demand. The company is finally seeing uptake from uh, recent product launches and expects incremental sales in the second half of 2017 and into 2018. Now, the game changers here going forward for Seacom may be uh, a couple of investments the company has made uh, over the past several years. The first was began in 2014. Seacom entered an agreement with Viasat, a large satellite-based company, to jointly develop a low-cost vehicle-based com on the move KA band antenna for the commercial market known as its in motion antenna. Assuming successful completion by the end of this year, Seacom expects to be able to sell this new in motion antenna system through its distribution channels worldwide and in, uh, at the end of this year. And in 2018, it expects to integrate into the KA band services around the world. 
Seacom intends to deliver this product through its international reseller to over 700 resellers and integrators uh, based in over 100 companies world, countries sorry, worldwide. The company is also involved in extensive R&D for the next generation antenna technologies in conjunction with the University of Waterloo. Uh, it's promised funding on that project. This project should provide Seacom with revolutionary patented KA band antenna technology to be used with a growing number of HTS being launched in the next several years. The intelligent antenna technology is designed to be mass producible at reasonable price and compatible with 5G and other developing technologies which require low cost, high performance conformal solutions. Now let's look at the valuations here. Seacom has always had an and grown through internally generated cash flow, which is something we like. They have a very strong balance sheet. There's currently 15 million in cash in the bank and roughly, which is roughly 40 cents per share or 40% of the market cap with no debt. But what has been a very tough environment for its business, the company has only managed to post over the last 12 months about two and a half to 2.3, sorry, cents per share in earnings. So it trades at around 44 times trailing earnings, which is not cheap. Even if we remove that $0.40 cents in cash uh, and just value the $0.62 cents that we would say is remaining for the operating business, the company is trading at a PE of 27, which is rich given the market PE is around 18 to 20. While we see management committed to its dividend given the historical profitability, the company has not covered the dividend from cash flow or free cash flow over the last uh, stretch of tough quarters. So... We do see this turning around, however, as the outlook is more positive. Our take on this stock, we share the, see the shares as fairly valued at present. The 5% dividend yield is attractive and maybe enough for some investors, but we would wait for an uptick in cash flow from new products to be an aggressive buyer. Seacom is certainly a company to watch and offers a good deal more value than most microcap on the TSX venture. We continue to monitor it. For those who currently own it, it would rank as a hold if you're satisfied with that 5% dividend. Now we're going to move on to Yellen, Janet Yellen's comments on interest rates this week. Uh, Aaron, I know you've got some thoughts on that. Absolutely. So Federal Reserve Chair Janet Yellen spoke on Tuesday, and she admitted that inflation may be weaker than recently anticipated. Um, which could cause the Fed to take a more gradual approach to increasing interest rates going forward. Since last December, the Fed has raised their benchmark rate three times to uh, one and a quarter percent. And the target is for them to increase the rate again three times in 2018. But for 2019, they recently reduced their target from three increases down to two uh, expected increases. So Yellen said that although unemployment was at a low 4.4%, the share of, Amer of Americans aged 25 to 54 who are working remains low, and the proportion of part-time workers who prefer full-time jobs is still above pre-recession levels. This, this is something that, that some people have been complaining about for a while, while others have been applauding the improving unemployment numbers in the U.S. over the past seven years. So just to provide a very quick explanation of what the Fed is trying to do, both the Federal Reserve in the U.S. and the Bank of Canada up here use their benchmark interest rate to influence inflation and try and, and, try and get inflation to around the 2% level. If inflation is too low, this indicates weak activity and it can be a drag on investment and spending. So in that case, the benchmark rate is lowered to encourage money flow. Um, if, the, if the rate is too high, if inflation is too high, 
then it indicates an overheated economy and this can cause a wide range of problems. So the benchmark rate would be increased to slow down activity. And the trick is, is to get this just right, and that's a very difficult thing to do. So the Fed looks at a lot of different things when making their decisions, and one of the main things that they look at is strength of the labor market, because wage growth is a key driver of inflation. Um, when, the, when the labor market is, is discussed in the media, usually the focus is on the unemployment rate, which, which currently sits at 4.4% in the U.S., and has been declining steadily from its recession high of about 10% in 2010. But even, even in the strongest economy, you're going to have some level of unemployment. And so 4.4% is quite good, and that's actually indicative of an expanding economy. But what this, this number doesn't tell the whole story because it only accounts for people who are actively looking for work and, does not, and it doesn't include people who have given up on looking for work for at least four weeks. So the labor participation rate measures the percentage of working age people who are actively looking for employment. And this number has actually been declining since 2010 um, from about the 65-66% range to 63% level today. And this means that the proportion of the, the strength in the unemployment rate that we've seen is really the result of people just leaving the workforce. Um, and the common belief is that this happens. People leave the workforce when they become disgruntled because they can't find any work. So this is largely what Janet Yellen is talking about and why some people have doubted the strength of the U.S. economic recovery and expansion and the credibility of these unemployment figures. But what's also interesting to note is that the decline in the labor participation rate actually started well before the, the last recession. It started around the year 2000 when it hit an all-time peak of about 67%. And people argue back and forth about why this is happening, and there's, there's more than one reason, but a big factor is, is definitely technological unemployment. Automation has eliminated a lot of jobs in some areas, while it's created jobs in other areas, but these aren't the same jobs. So while there's a labor shortage in some high-tech areas of the economy, there's a labor surplus in other areas, and many of the workers either won't or can't retrain and relocate to go where the jobs are. Yeah, uh, I think it's a great summary. Um, we what we do know is, you know, that the Fed is in a tightening cycle right now, and tightening cycles historically, if you look back, have almost always ended poorly. But this cycle is a different one, and we really don't know the outcome. The only thing we really do know is that Fed is likely to be wrong in their assessment of. Uh, on, on how many tightenings we will see or how many rate increases we will see in a given year. And uh, I would not be surprised if, you know, because where core inflation is, if you look at any chart on core inflation since January of this year, it's been trending down in the U.S. So uh, I'm not sure in that type of environment where you need to have uh, a number of uh, further rate hikes. So until you see that core inflation level pick up, uh, and which it has not through, through I think, tracking through June of this year um, and into July, uh, I don't think you, there's cause for a significant rate hike in the U.S. So, I Well, think- I agree. It's, it's very hard to hit it right at, at, the, at the right point. And whatever, whatever they're saying they're going to do a year or two from now, you can be pretty much sure whatever they <laughs> yeah. do is not yeah. going to be the, the same thing as what they're saying. I think that's the only it's certainty. The nature, nature the, of that yeah. game. And it's the only certainty that we really have because it is really 
you know, I, people always say it's different this time, and a lot of the time it isn't different. But this, this, in, the type of experiment that the Fed has done with the U.S.'s balance sheet is a completely different animal than we've seen in the past. So anyone who says they know the outcome, uh, to me, is lying. They don't. They don't know the outcome. We have not seen this. We have not tested this environment out. So. You know, the only thing, like I said, we do know is the Fed is likely wrong in its assessment and is going, what we've seen is they've been on the high side of the tightening and it's been significantly lower in terms of how many how many rate hikes they've had in a year. And I think that's something you can guarantee going forward. It's time we answer a question on your stock in a little segment we like to call Your Stock, Our Take, Buy, Sell, or Hold. This week, in our Your Stock, Our Take segment, we take a question from a listener in Edmonton, Alberta. It is on a company called Mama Mancini's. It is timely because they just reported their second quarter fiscal 2018 financial results. Mama Mancini's, is their symbol is MMMB, and it trades on the OTCQX in the U.S., the QX is one of the only areas of the OTC in which, in the U.S. in which we would seriously look at. We see it as more equivalent in terms of disclosures to the TSX venture, and we've actually recommended a couple of companies on that exchange this year that have performed quite well. Shares are trading around $1.01. It has a market cap of around $30 million U.S. They are a marketer and distributor of a line of beef meatballs and turkey meatballs, all with sauce. The company's sales have grown consistently uh, and been growing consistently as it expands its distributor channels, which includes a number of major retailers such as Costco, Publix, ShopRite, SuperValue, Shoppers, and Lowe's. The company also sells a variety of products, uh, of its products, on air and online on QVC, the world's largest direct-to-consumer marketer. So those second quarter results, they did show tremendous growth in terms of revenues, up 69% to $7 million from $4.1 in the same period last year. The company broke into profitability in that, in that quarter. Uh, it has been profitable for the last couple quarters, just marginally so, though. They made 24000 in earnings in that quarter, but it re- did reverse a loss in the same period last year of around 277000 Now... Where is this growth being driven from? It stems directly from the company's strategy of focus on selling its products into the prepared food markets, ready-to-eat mail, meals and sandwich shop areas that are located on fresh food perimeter of, the, of major retailer and grocery stores. It is a trend that we continue to see growing these easy-to-eat, ready-to-eat meals or easy-to-prepare meals, and the company is taking advantage of that. If we look at the last three years, Good solid revenue growth, uh, 2015, 12 million in revenues up to 12.6 in 2016, a real step up last year to 18 million, and we're seeing stronger growth even this year. Some recent news from the company, the company signed an LOI recently or a letter of intent to acquire its manufacturing operations. This proposed transaction is expected to be immediately accretive and increase EBITDA by one and a half to two million this year alone. So if that goes through, it should be uh, it, it's on the plus column in terms of uh, driving its better valuations going forward. Our take on the company operations seem to be growing, heading in the right directions. Mama Mancini's is a small food company, primarily selling meatballs. 
Despite this seemingly small market, they have a presence in several big box grocery chains and are in every single Sam's Club, Stop and Shop, Publix, and Giant stores in the U.S. They are consistently growing their top line at 40% plus every year, and they did just achieve profitability. All these are pluses. There is some expensive debt here in the company. Mama Mancini's had to secure a substantial amount of financing to fund losses since it became a public company in 2013. Over this time, they accumulated around $15 million in accumulated losses. Uh, about $8 million of those financing still show up on the balance sheet today in the form of some expensive debt and preferred shares. So this is a risk. The company will have to refinance some of that debt. It is also an opportunity if they are able to refinance that debt at lower levels. It should help earnings going forward. It's growing at a rapid rate, and if they can refinance that expensive debt, there is a potential for a jump in earnings go forward. going forward. We see it as high risk, but there is potential for high rewards here. We monitor the stock at present, and we are looking for a true profit breakthrough before we participate. It is a company that we have, again, on our monitor list. Anyways, I'd like to thank everybody for, uh, for again, logging in and logging on and listening to our show this week. I'd like to thank my co-host, Aaron. Uh, I think we had some good topics to discuss this week and went through. I'd like to encourage all of our listeners to uh, sign up for our upcoming DIY seminars. We'd love to see you out at those events. Aaron, I'm going to wish everybody profitable investing. Thank you. Profitable investing. Thank you.